0: Kenakoto Kato, welcome, and uh, it's great to see you all here on a gorgeous Wellington summery day. Five days after the first British troops crossed the Mangatāwhiri stream, the boundary line that Wuramu Tamehana had repeatedly told Governor Gray marked the border between the territory under the authority of the Kingitanga and that of the Crown, and crossing it would be taken as a hostile act a corporal spent a few minutes scribbling in his diary. 17 July, 1863. This has been an eventful day, the first serious engagement with the enemy in the province of Auckland. What the writer was recording was, as we now know, the opening exchange in what we've come to describe as the Waikato War, the Great War for New Zealand. On that day, 17th of July, There was a two-hour-long action at Kohiroa in which British troops claimed victory over their Māori opponents on a ridgetop. And also on that day, there was a more disastrous ambush further back up the road at Martin's Farm. Two days later, our diarist, the same man, noted 19 July – We had a wretched wet day and miserable cold, and anyone who ever experienced the mornings of a winter's campaign and a very cold day can guess how we felt next morning after lying in our wet clothes all night. The fact that General Duncan Cameron had chosen to launch his campaign in the middle of winter is one that's been noted, had he and Gray had their hands forced by political circumstances. What were all those troops doing in Auckland for a year? It was a fact that wasn't appreciated by the men under their command. A few weeks later, the anonymous corporal who kept this account had had more experience of what fighting in the Waikato would mean. Skirmishing, insecurity, being on the alert for ambushes and a lot of waiting around and routine in between. His diary, kept upstairs in the collections of the Alexander Turnbull Library in this building, records the days in which those dramatic actions happen, but also the passing of routine and the mundane. We sleep 16 in a tent and never take off our clothes, and only taking off our belt during the day. We are likewise in continual danger of being shot down by a hidden enemy, the bush being within easy range of us on all sides. A party is told off every day to carry water, and another party with arms to escort them. It was a nerve-wracking campaign. Days of nothing. Nights of cold. Everywhere uncertainty. The atmosphere saturated with incipient violence, danger and insecurity. Some of that violence came from the inside, within the army ranks themselves. On the 2nd, 6th and 28th of August, our anonymous diarist notes that days that begin with men, his fellow soldiers, being flogged. Fifty lashes for being drunk while on the march was normal. Flogging or corporal punishment was routine practice in the 19th century British Army. But it was still shocking and exceptional enough for this man to record these punishments in his diary in chilling precision. The punishments were always performed in front of all the troops. Everyone was required to be witness to the discipline imposed. The diary of this corporal of the 40th Regiment takes us inside the ranks of the Imperial troops sent to New Zealand to fight in the 1860s. There were, in total, around 12,000 of such men in the colony, in the years 1860 to 65, a time period that spans the outbreak of war in Taranaki in March of 1860 through to the end of the large scale campaign phase in 1865, and the withdrawal of most of the British troops by 1866, though of course the last remain in Auckland until 1870. In the case of our man, our diarist, his regiment, the 40th, had sailed from Australia to New Plymouth in the early months of 1860 as war broke out in Taranaki. Governor Gore Brown's insistence on seeing through the disputed sale of land at Waitara had led to instruction to send in the troops to confront Te Atiawa resistance. The project we're talking about today is focused on this man, our diarist, his fellows in arms, and the wider ambit and significance of the red coat presence in colonial New Zealand and across the wider British Empire in the mid-19th century. A core question it's asking is who are the soldiers of empire who ended up in New Zealand fighting in the calamitous wars of the 1840s and, even more spectacularly and disastrously, in the 1860s. These events, as Neil has noted, are soon to be commemorated in the first day of remembrance, the Ra Maumahaura, on the 28th of October. Our project predated the announcement of that day by the Government last year, but it forms part of the wider impetus to know more, to unearth more, and to give greater prominence to these events in our history, and in so doing, to recognise the long legacy they leave. In 2013-15, to it was Iwi that led the 150th anniversaries of these events, as these people are doing at Te Ranga on the 21st of June. Uh, 1864, remembered uh, in um, 2014. In 2017 and into the future, what role will Pākehā New Zealanders have in recalling these events? Will we be paying attention or will we be looking away? (coughs) Speaking in this building at another event on Monday night of this week, Gary Wilson, who's the co-editor of the Itangata site, commented an answer to a question of why histories of 19th-century conflict are often put out of sight or angrily dismissed by Pākehā. His answer was that expressions of Pākehā discomfort or uneasiness or impatience come from people not knowing their history, from an absence. If I can step into the space then between the past and the present for a moment, taking up that notion that the present is the moving edge of the past – can I make two points? The first, looking to the past. Although the largest numbers and concentrations of redcoats, imperial soldiers, were in New Zealand in the early 1860s, they were a constant presence through the 1840s to 1870, through those first three decades of organised settlement in New Zealand, first in tiny numbers as a guard to the governor, then in larger numbers as the war in the north broke out, and around Wellington and other parts of the country where there were those challenges in the late 1840s. So we have here Samuel Brees paints red coats doing their thing in well- on Wellington's waterfront between the banks and the barrack there. Uh, in Auckland, already a large barrack uh, established uh, and parade ground. And that long presence of both the 65th Regiment and the 58th under Colonel Wynyard. Auckland, again, in the early 1850s, where the ordinary life of the town includes redcoats at the wharf here. And, of course, we have the Fensible Scheme, building that ring of military pensioner villages on the southern side of Auckland. Secondly, in looking to the present and outside the conventional forms we might think of as history, we see redcoats everywhere, In the landscape around us and place names, of which there are many, the remaining part of the Albert Barracks Wall, cutting right through the middle of the University of Auckland campus, and I often wonder how many of the thousands of students at uh, what our colleagues in the north call the premier New Zealand University, uh, (laughs) do they know what this wall represents, the fragment that is there? But what we also see is this event in many other places. Uh, in Lisa Rehanna's magnificent current installation in uh, Pursuit of Venus, of w- from which this is a detail, we see red coats appearing throughout that work uh, of a reimagining of a neoclassical 19th century wallpaper, but telling a very critical historical story. In music, and this is where the title slide um, comes from, the thrash metal band Alien Weaponry's song, Raupatu, won the APRA uh, Maiohea Te, Te Award at the Silver Scrolls last week in Dunedin. Uh, their version of their winning song, Raupatu, was performed at the Silver Scrolls uh, by this group. Um, Ariana Takao, who's also a staff member at the Turnbull Library, Alistair Fraser, Horomona, Horo, and James Webster. And if you didn't um, see it last week, absolutely uh, look at it on YouTube. It's an incredibly powerful, um, theatrical, um, strong uh, version. Um, Alien Weaponry have done a number of songs based on telling historical stories. Their statement, if I just go back for a minute, about why they compose songs in te reo and tell them from history, uh, is, as they say, if it's something that's happened in this country, it's like, why should we not be learning about it? And we see in that statement about the nature of their composition an echo, of course, of the Ōtawohonga students' petition and call for uh, more history, and particularly the history of the 19th century wars to be told. We also see in poetry... In Arini Beautre's recent book, Flow, uh, and an even newer, so new it's not yet, published collection by Michelle Leggett, Vanishing Points, stories and echoes of this history also present. It feels like a very historically resonant moment in New Zealand cultural life, a demand for an exploration of history. And I'll come back to Michelle Leggett at the end. What we're wanting to do is to tell one part of that history – it's one that Vincent O'Malley, so Kia ora Vincent, um, has found himself, I think, coming up against as he's taken his book, published almost exactly a year ago around the country over the past year, a question that Pākehā New Zealanders sometimes have asked, how do I know if my predecessors took part in these events? What of the Pākehā protagonists? Who was the crown all government forces who took up arms against Taranaki iwi in 1860-61, the Kingitanga and their allies in subsequent years? Who are the faces, the names, the lives behind the abstraction of government, Crown, British, Empire, or as W.F. Gordon famously put on his album, Soldiers of the Queen? recognising that the 19th century army is a very different thing from the 20th century one. It's not an army of civilian uh, soldiers, it's an army of professional men. It seemed to us important and worth knowing more about the faces behind the uniforms, the names behind the numbers, some of whom took their discharge from the army in New Zealand and became soldier settlers, but most of whom did not. Importantly, also, this large group of men, soldiers, also served in other actions in other parts of the 19th century British Imperial world. Some had been at the Crimea in 1854-56, others in India at the time of the Rebellion of 1857. Others had served in New South Wales and Van Diemen's Land in Australia. Some of the men of the 40th Regiment, with whom our anonymous diarists served, had been in Victoria, where they'd been sent to keep order on the goldfields and been involved in that Eureka Rebellion. In early 1860, they were suddenly in New Zealand. Who are they? Who are the faces behind the numbers? And where did they come from? Some of our answers come from the big data, as we might now call it, kept copiously and very carefully in the War Office archives held at the National Archives in Kew in London. And Rebecca will be saying a bit more about what we've extracted from some of this. They're also individuals, and we're wanting to always be moving, I think, between understanding them as a group and understanding them as individuals. Thomas Alexander, one of the men who could have been depicted in Edward Arthur Williams' painting here, a rank-and-file private soldier in the 50th Regiment, who was 25 years old when he disembarked with his fellow soldiers in Auckland in 1863 at the end of a voyage from Candy in Ceylon. he had spent most of his six years in uniform with the regiment there, enlisting at the age of 18 in 1857. His experience was not unusual, symptomatic of the fact that the large commitment of the British Army to service abroad at this point in the 19th century. For Thomas Alexander, who grew up in Colchester, a garrison town, a life in the army was a highly predictable path for a young man whose father was a gardener, supporting a family of seven children and an elderly aunt. Alexander served with the 50th in New Zealand. He took part in campaigns in the Waikato. But in March of 1864, he applied for a discharge on medical grounds on the basis of being medically unfit because of a serious case of ophthalmia, eye disease, which was quite common amongst troops. His application was successful. He was returned to England with a small medical pension. By 1871, he's married, is working as a farm labourer in his home county of Essex. Ten years later, his circumstances are a little different. Indeed, they could have deteriorated, His family of nine children is living on what he can scrape by literally as a scavenger as he gives his occupation and presumably by then the assistance of his older sons and daughters. He lives until 1917, still in extremely modest circumstances. So Alexander's a man for whom soldiering in New Zealand forms just a small episode in his young adult life takes him to distant parts of the globe as a young man, but not much further. In either mobility, he goes back to really where he starts, or in social position. What we see, then, is this life in the army and the classic role of soaking up excess male labour when industrial, an industrialising capitalist economy cannot provide sufficient or a sustaining livelihood for all. Or we could take two men from the 65th Regiment, Those men who are here for the longest time, the 20 years of the Hickety Pips as they're known, of course. John Knight, who appears in the official papers as a labourer, who served 17 years and 228 days with that regiment, 11 of which were spent in service abroad, six years in India, five years and eight months in New Zealand. He arrives here in 1854. He takes his discharge from the army and spent the rest of his life in New Plymouth, carrying a scar under his right eye from a musket ball. But he clearly made some kind of success of his life. He married, had children, and his son inherits £150 on his father's death in 1890. Sam McGill, a weaver from County Down, also a man in the 65th, was in the army for 22 years and 103 days of which almost all 19 years and six months were spent in New Zealand. He signed his discharge papers with his mark. Like many soldiers, particularly the Irish, he was illiterate, and we don't as yet know his fate. He stated his intending place at the moment of taking his discharge as in Whanganui. Where did they come from? The overall picture of men being sent round the world where the Empire demanded their services is apparent when looking at the patterns of where redcoats travelled from to get here. Alexander's regiment, the 50th, travelled from Ceylon. Others came from India. The 57th regiment, again in Taranaki in 1860, travelled from Bombay to New Plymouth in 1860. And when more troops were needed there, the other side of India was called on men of the 70th, travelled from Calcutta. And for reasons of time, I shall... Fast forward on the travel uh, that the surgeon Meikleham gives of that regiment's um, movement from Alabard down to Calcutta by boat, by bullock train, by rail, She gives in great detail, before they embark uh, the very early months of 1861, travelling in three ships. On all three ships, cholera broke out on the voyage and there were a number of deaths, so by the time the 70th Regiment arrives here, uh, it's not in terribly good shape, and they gradually uh, recover. They're sent to Otahu, where they live in tents, uh, in the wetness of a winter, uh, a New Zealand winter. One thing that's very evident from what I've said thus far is that Redcoats British soldiers were highly mobile. They travelled across the world in the pursuit not of venture, uh, but rather at the end of instructions and orders given. That movement across the world makes the business of tracking them down 150 year or so years later, both possible but also quite challenging. And at this point, I'll turn to Rebecca to tell you a bit more about the work in tracking individuals.
1: So counting these redcoats is less straightforward than it seems like it should be. As many of you will be aware, various published sources over the years have given different figures of how many imperial troops were serving here in New Zealand uh, during the New Zealand wars. The most often quoted figure is from Balich, who states, The peak imperial commitment in the Waikato War was therefore nearly 12,000 men, of whom three quarters were effective and serving in Waikato. The total mobilisation, men who served in the British forces at some time or another, was in the order of 18,000 men. Just what that figure of 18,000 men is based on isn't clear. No one source exists that gives us one neat and tidy list, or even tally, of every man who served with the British Army in New Zealand over this period. There are two primary reasons for this. Number one, the War Office never needed such a list to exist. And number two, creating such a list from the multiple sources available now is tricky and time-consuming. On the surface, it seems odd that the War Office would never have needed such a list. Certainly, they were, as Charlotte has mentioned, keepers of copious amounts of paperwork pertaining to the men in their command. The men were captured on paper at enlistment, discharge on daily, monthly, quarterly and annual basis in between... If the man received a military pension, these records continued on for years after his period of service had ended. These records variously note, among other things, date and place of birth and of enlistment, height, weight and any marks and scars on their bodies, trade prior to enlistment, places the men had served and for how long, medical information from their period of service, any punishments or rewards received by the men their cause of discharge and where they were discharging to, their rate of pay and whether they had spent any days in prison or in hospital, and if applicable, details of marriage and of any children. But while the army needed to know how many men were in any given place at any given time, and they needed to know what their expenditure was in arming, feeding, clothing and housing these men, they never needed a list for that accounted for every man who was serving uh, in New Zealand. The closest they came to needing such a list was in awarding the New Zealand Campaign Medal, and I'll talk about that a little bit more shortly. What complicates the making of such a complete list in the present day is that unlike 20th uh, 20th century military files, mid-19th century military files did not include anything like a personnel file that kept in one place everything that you might want to know about a man in his period of service. Instead, the information we desire is strewn across multiple files in various ways. The War Office 17 series, the summary of monthly returns to the Adjutant General of British troops in New Zealand 1840 to 1865, shows a peak number of British troops serving here in April 1864 of 10,337 men. This source uh, tallies the total number of men serving in New Zealand month by month and includes a tally of those who died, deserted or discharged in that month. Based on that, one might expect that with some fairly simple math we could work out just what the total number of men was over this full period. Unfortunately, from the 1st of July 1863, these tallies of died, deserted and discharged also included those serving in Australia. From June 1864, the total number serving may also include Australia and the series as a whole only runs to the end of 1865 and obviously there were British troops still serving here for a few years after that. And even if these weren't issues, the tallies don't tell us how many of the men who deserted later came back or how many of these desertions were second, third, fourth, fifth defences or how many of those who discharged re-engaged with the same regiment or with another. So while it gives us a good start point for counting, it has some issues. As we can see from the graph on screen here, it does at least give us a very clear indication of the main trend in numbers in service in any given month. The first large data set we compiled for this project was the source I mentioned a moment ago, the New Zealand medal list. The list was compiled by individual regiments in 1869, recording all the men of that regiment who could have been eligible for this campaign medal. Whereas colonial troops were only eligible for the campaign medal if they had come under fire and could prove that, all imperial troops who served in New Zealand and were still alive in 1869 were eligible. The list records a tick or a cross or an R uh, to denote whether the man had actually received the medal, and usually notes why he didn't if he didn't. Whether or not the man received the medal isn't particularly relevant to us uh, in the project at the moment, but what the list gives us is some basic details about just under 12,000 men who served in New Zealand over this period. Nearly 1,400 of these men were colonial troops. The medal list doesn't tell us where a man served, only sometimes tells us what he did after New Zealand, doesn't give us place of birth or enlistment details, nor descriptive nor health information about the men. What it does give us is a name for the majority of the men serving over this period that takes us a step beyond. The simple tallies that the WO17 series gives us and allows us to match at least some of these men up with other sources and begin to put a face to them. Many of the regiments also recorded actions the men had been engaged in, giving us an indication as well of movement around New Zealand of individual men as well as regiments. Depending on the regiment, this list sometimes does and sometimes does not include those who died while in service or those who had deserted during or since their period of service. So as useful as it is as a start point, we know that this isn't a total list of all of the men who served. The next step then in trying to flesh out this total list of men is to try and identify the men who fell into one of those three D categories, died, deserted or discharged. As well as military records, deserters were recorded in the New Zealand Gazette with full details on the date and place of desertion, what they were wearing at the time, age and any bodily marks or scars or other features that might help to identify them. Ray Sexton compiled these in the 1980s, taking her list up to 1863. So based on Sexton's publication, we have a list of 420 men who deserted and some details about them. 51 of these men we've been able to match to the New Zealand war uh, medalist. Over the summer we'll be filling in the period after 1863 to complete that data set. In terms of those who died uh, during service in New Zealand, there are various sources that we're pulling together to compile this list. Searching the records of the Simon Street Cemetery turns up not only British soldiers who died, but also wives and children of those men. Newspaper reports quite often reported the regiment of men even decades after the wars, such as we see here for Joseph Connor, late of the 65th Regiment, who died on the 3rd of February 1900 at age 80. So we've been able to identify some men serving over this period from death notices years later, as well as lists of wounded or dead from major battles and deaths outside of warfare, especially in the case of drowning. The War Office 334 slash (laughs) 34 files give us some, but I'm fairly certain not all, of the deaths for 1864. When we match this up with the AMSR records, that is the Army Medical Department statistical reports for this year, there's a difference between them of at least 50 men. Again, one of the goals over the summer is to fill in this list of the dead a little further with a more systematic search of newspapers and possibly, if time permits, matching up the AMSR list uh, with some quarterly muster rolls, filling in gaps where we know there are extra men for given months. Regarding discharged... For those who took their discharge in New Zealand, at least, we are very fortunate in having another published list of these men, this one compiled by Lynn and Hugh Hughes, published in 1988. This couple, uh, members of the New Zealand Society of Genealogists, combed through the quarterly muster rolls for each of the regiments serving in New Zealand through the 1840s to 1860s, and identified each man recorded as taking his discharge in New Zealand. This they recorded along with any other details that usually included place of birth, place of enlistment, trade pre-enlistment, among other details, and they published this in a book ordered by regiment. Their list does not include officers who took their discharge here, nor the died or deserted, Uh, all information that is also available on the pages that they were scouring. In terms of rich data for analysis of these men, this data is very good. Uh, Whether or not we ultimately are able to include it in our final database that combines our various data sources will depend on whether or not the NZSG is happy for us to do so. So from these sources we're getting a pretty good picture of the men as a whole. Time and budget constraints on such a project as this are unfortunately such that we'll be unable to flesh out the database as fully as we might like, but there's always more to do. One source I've mentioned in passing a few times, the quarterly muster rolls, would if we had unlimited time and resources, uh, eventually give us a full list of every man who served here. However, these records are vast and quite dense. Each of these rolls lists every man serving in the regiment in New Zealand over the previous three months for every one of the regiments four times a year for this entire period. In order to compile our complete list from this, would require a transcription of every man in the lists each quarter across the multiple different forms within these roles, capturing new arrivals, temporary and permanent departures, transfers to other regiments and so forth. Rather than do this for every regiment that served here, an impossible task in the time we have, we've instead chosen to take a closer look at three regiments. Uh, and a closer look still at a sample of men from those three regiments. These three regiments were chosen based on the length of time that they served here, where they'd come from and where they went to. The 50th Regiment came to New Zealand in November 1864 from Ceylon and remained here nearly four years, departing for Australia in September 67. (laughs) The 65th came to New Zealand July 46 from England and remained here 19 years, departing for England in 65. The 68th arrived January 64 and served here just over two years before departing for England in March 66. So we hope this will give us, if not a representative picture of the regiment serving in New Zealand as a whole, at least an indication of the variety of experiences a man in a regiment serving in New Zealand might have had. Within those three regiments, we've taken a further sample to focus in on around about 120 men. The sample was originally taken from the War Office 97 records, pension records, for those discharged from the army either for health reasons or due to the completion of his term of service. For these men, we have reasonably full information about their period service because these files compile together information from across their period of service, including medical information so that a decision could be made regarding what type of pension this man would be eligible for. Over the summer, uh, again, one of our VUW Summer Scholarship recipients uh, working on the project will be following up these men in the quarterly muster rolls, among other tasks. One of the ultimate goals For this project is to link all of these separate data sources together in one big relational database, giving us not only a more accurate tally of the number of men who served here, but amalgamating as many details as we can together, enabling us to put a face, so to speak, to the men and to enable some more interesting analysis of them. The aim is to make this public uh, and accessible, and hopefully to do so in such a way that people can not only search for a man by name, uh, but also play with the data a little bit, uh, visualising it in various ways to come to understand the patterns that we might be able to see a little bit better. The first step in this data release will come in the next couple of weeks, uh, when we'll be putting up a transcription of the New Zealand medal list. Just quickly, before I pass you back to Charlotte, a few preliminary, very preliminary uh, findings from our data so far. Among those who took their discharge in New Zealand, uh, 57% had been born in Ireland, just 39% in England, and 3% in Scotland. This is in very stark contrast to the British-born population of New Zealand at the time, which was around 60% English, 25% Scottish, and only 15% Irish. And it was in contrast to the composition of the British Army as well. While in 1830 the army had been around about 42% Irish, by 1870 it was only 28% Irish. So this very large cohort of Irish discharging in New Zealand is remarkable whichever way we look at it. Whether it just happened that the regiments serving in New Zealand were also very heavily Irish we're not, we're not sure yet. Uh, but it's not unreasonable, I think, to speculate that the same factors in Ireland that were uh, prompting high levels of immigration generally also compelled more Irish than others to take their discharge in a migrant settlement rather than back in the UK. Interestingly, uh, analysis of the deserters shows a different pattern again three times the proportion of Scots deserted as took their discharge in New Zealand, and the proportions of English and Irish are pretty well swapped. Again, at this point, this is just speculation, but given conditions in Ireland that compelled people to sign up for the army in the first place, it could be that there just wasn't the same incentive for uh, Irish to be leaving these regiments, uh, leaving these trying conditions of army life as there may have been for the English and Scots. I'm yet to compare these desertions with other regiments in other locations uh, or by place of birth. Regardless of whether they were making their way into New Zealand society by desertion or discharge, these were, very broadly speaking, not necessarily the settlers that authorities in New Zealand were seeking. Contemporary observers saw discharged soldiers as good for very little. In In 1852, Marx described them alongside vagabonds, discharged jailbirds, escaped galley slaves, rogues, pickpockets, tricksters, gamblers, and organ grinders. Describing the London docks in the 1850s, Henry Mayhew noted that dock labourers are a striking instance of mere brute force with brute appetites. This class of labourer is as unskilled as the power of a hurricane. Mere muscle is all that is needed." The London Dock is one of the few places in the metropolis where men can get employment without either character or recommendation, hence we find men of every calling labouring at the docks, including in his list old soldiers and old sailors, alongside almsmen, pensioners and thieves. In addition to a skill set that is arguably not ideally suited to the life of a settler, a decade or more in the army had also left its mark on these men physically and psychologically. Thomas Lawless of the 68th Regiment enlisted at age 24 in uh, 1857. When he discharged as unfit for further service 19 years later, the attending doctor noted that his disabilities were not likely to be reversed. He would be unable to contribute materially towards his own support, but the disease had not been caused or aggravated, aggravated by vice or intemperance. During his time in the army, Lawless was admitted to the hospital 16 times for a total of 295 days, occasionally for reasonably mild things like blisters and ulcers, but more often for such complaints as clubfoot, acute rheumatism, palpitations, dengue, and six times for gonorrhea. Of the first 384 inquests ever performed in Auckland, 25 of those were into the deaths of soldiers, and six of those were due to drunkenness. John Drake, a private in the 65th Regiment, being intoxicated with liquor and being laid down to sleep with a tight military stock around his neck, accidentally, casually, and by misfortune, being completely covered with bedclothes, was choked, suffocated, and stifled and died. So how did contemporary New Zealanders feel about this flood of apparently alcoholic, broken-bodied riffraff soldiers taking their discharge there? How did these men get on once they had... These are questions we still need to look into more fully, but we know at least some of them ended up in a very poor state, living on the meagre pension provided to them for their service, and eventually dying alone, homeless, or in a home for old men. Such was the tale of Crayfish Charlie, Previously, Charles Warren of the 70th Regiment, who was found dead at age 74 in a filthy and dilapidated hut with rats running over his body, having suffered heart trouble, dropsy, kidney disease and chronic diabetes for many years. Why these men took their discharge in New Zealand or why they chose to desert here are also questions we still have to look into much more fully. And there are, of course, a variety of possible reasons and I think it's pretty safe to say we'll never know the half of it.
0: So... Um, Rebecca's told you something about the um, soldiers as individuals and drawn some features of them as a group, but we also know um, that uh, some women and children travelled to New Zealand with the British regiments as well. At the site of the Albert Barracks archaeologist Janice um, Fraser, or Adamson as she is now, has uncovered traces of domestic life in the midst of that single very large military site. Figures you can see in pieces of um, porcelain here, including uh, pieces of a doll, and very clearly evidences of domestic life. The British Army did not necessarily view marriage as a desirable thing. Unlike other sections of Victorian society, wives and families threatened regimental solidarity, were expensive, impeded the movement of troops from place to place. Life in the army was more often as a bachelor for most. And it was true for officers as well as men. Duncan Cameron himself had never married and only did so in his retirement. But some men did marry and some of those were permitted to marry on the strength, i.e. their wives and children supported by the regiment and travelling with them here. In return, some of them were required to do the laundry and sometimes other domestic-related tasks. When regiments were sent on overseas service, only a small proportion of women and children travelled with them. Again, often literally a lottery at the quayside. But, as we can see from these archaeological pieces, as well as some of the documentary records, some wives and children were present with troops in New Zealand. Some men did marry while on service here, sometimes to the chagrin of their commanding officers. Conditions for women and children on campaign were often pretty dire. Some Aucklanders were so appalled by the living conditions of some military families that they started a welfare society in order to support them more, and some of the very earliest welfare organisations date from this period. Women became casualties of war along with men as men fell victim to the risks of the New Zealand environment as much as to risks in action. In February of 1865, the Daily Southern Cross carried the report of the death of Corporal Payne of the 12th Regiment. He had drowned in the Waikato River while stationed at Naruahia Payne had been one of several soldiers in a canoe that got upturned, while others swam to safety. He had been, as the newspaper put it, encumbered with haversack and belts. And the newspaper added a further gloss to its report of this incident. This accident is to be the more deplored as the deceased was going to visit his wife who has only just arrived in Auckland and who he leaves with two children to lament his untimely loss. Mrs Dowd, whose first name we still do not know, similarly lost her husband, Patrick, who'd arrived with the 70th Regiment but had subsequently transferred into the Colonial Transport Corps. In September of 1864, he was travelling on the river with pay for the company and ended up drowning. The report noted all the soldiers in the boat were the worst for liquor. Mrs Dowd and her two young children were given a passage back to Calcutta after this incident. She made that journey from Alabad to Calcutta described by Surgeon Michael just four years earlier. What else do Redcoats bring to New Zealand from the places they've been and the backgrounds from which they've come? All I can do at this moment is to list and indicate some of the angles here that can be looked at. The latest technologies is one thing. We know the Enfield rifles, for instance, used in India and elsewhere, brought here. The telegraph line, those signs of modernity extended along the Great South Road by men with particular expertise of the Royal Engineers. Red coats that end up wearing blue serge jumpers to wear on the campaign, hence, Uh, the very different appearance and experimentation with army uniforms. They bring a labour force through 1861-62, those regiments stationed in New Zealand employed in the massive road building exercise constructing the Great South Road. So a huge quantity and value of labour that goes into that. They bring appetites of vice and other things, liquor and intemperance. Alcohol was part of the daily ration in the army and supplied liberally. Alcoholism was common. Disease, as we see in various forms, but also a very modernising set of medical surgeons led by James Mowat, who was one of the ultimate modernisers of uh, medical surgery uh, and medical sanitary care. He gave evidence to the Sanitary Commission after Crimea. To end, I want to turn from the counting and the, the detailed record to the forms of understanding that I signalled at the beginning, those being brought into range by artists, musicians, and poets. So one of the New Zealand's leading poets, Michelle Leggett, is about to publish a book called Vanishing Points, this book here, which is due to be published at the end of this month. In this work, one of her themes is what happens in Taranaki in 1860. She draws on Edwin Harris's series of paintings and drawings, all made or inspired by events on the 3rd of August 1860. The two ones at the top looking from the sea, the disembarking troops back to New Plymouth uh, and the ones at the foot looking from Marsland Hill back out to sea in the opposite direction. Harris arrived in New Plymouth in 1841 as one of the founding New Zealand company colonists there. His family grew there. He was a surveyor and an engineer. His son just a week before these paintings are drawn, is killed in an ambush and is buried in St Mary's churchyard. The family the next day are about to embark, as others did also, to become refugees in Nelson. One of the four paintings that Harris makes is this one in which he cuts out slices from the paper to make cutouts, showing the windows and houses, the church, and the tents in the foreground. And he titles this one, New Plymouth, An Optical Amusement, in brackets. And it's that work that Michelle Leggett takes as an inspiration for some of her work in this collection, Vanishing Points. And these are Michelle Leggett's words around this particular moment and this particular painting. It's an optical amusement, a punctured surface, letting light pour through holes cut out of the picture. Moon, army tents in the windows of houses, and St Mary's Church glow or flicker with luminance. Between them move women and children as well as soldiers. Steamers, a brig and a schooner ride on the moonlit sea. Part and not part of the scene is the artist's son who lies three days buried in the churchyard at the foot of the hill where his father sits sketching the arrival of imperial troops. Now walk away from the painting when it is lit up and see how light falls into the world on this side of the picture surface. Is this what the artist meant by his cutouts? Is this the meaning of every magic lantern slide? Thank you.